0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we're going to be continuing in Mark 1, uh, verses 9 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that should be good. There ought to be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you that you can use for today. And uh, if you have, if you don't have a Bible at home that you call your own, consider that a gift from us to you this morning. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, When you have turned there, go ahead and stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, Providence, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who, in their, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Providence. this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated.
1: Good morning, Providence. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself this morning. Uh, Like Scott said, we're in the book of Mark. I'm excited this year to work our way through the book of Mark. And uh, Ty did a great job introducing the series last week. I hope you guys are are intrigued and interested and uh, your ears all perked up as we continue our work through it this morning. But before I jump into the text, what I'd love to do is pray and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us and to speak to us through God's word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, what a privilege it is that this morning we get the opportunity to submit ourselves under the authority and the power of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illuminate your word through the ages these words that were recorded for us thousands of years ago, that we might be shaped and molded and changed by the power of your word. Just as the first hearers heard this account of you, Jesus, we pray that it would come alive to us as we hear this account, perhaps for the first time or maybe the umpteenth time as we hear these words we ask that they would have their desired effect not our desires my God but your desires and you know us Lord you know our individual needs and so we do ask would you meet them would you meet them in your grace and in your mercy and in so doing help that it might bring courage and encouragement to us we ask in Jesus good name amen amen So I just want to piggyback on something that Ty mentioned last week, which is that the Gospel of Mark begins with the character John, and this happens uh, often in the first four books of the New Testament, is that it's kind of odd that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but John becomes a central character early, uh, and he's the forerunner, as it were, of, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about John is that we don't get a ton, because obviously these These gospels, these uh, accounts of Jesus' life are the gospels or the good news of Jesus. And it's his life, his death, his resurrection that's at the heart of these books. And yet we do get little snippets about John. And what's said about John should baffle us. It's kind of shocking. Jesus himself, who we know is the God-man, says that John is the greatest man to ever live. That this was no small thing. This prophet coming out in the wilderness was a massive deal. And it seems like the Bible is giving us that indication here in Mark as well, when it tells us that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea is coming out into the wilderness by the Jordan to hear this guy who is preaching, a man who wears camel's hair and eats wild locusts and honey, okay? He is not following your typical uh, advertisement pattern, let's say, for a ministry. And this guy's got crowds, massive crowds. And the reason that I wanted to bring us back there is I want us to put ourselves in this situation because as John is ministering to these crowds, and if you remember last week, one of the things that he says to this crowd is, there comes one after me who was before me and I am unworthy to even unloose the strap of this man's sandals and he will baptize you not with water like me, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Other gospels give other accounts of John testifying that Jesus was greater than him. The book of John in particular says that John, as all the disciples of John start to go over to follow Jesus, and his disciples start to get worried, as most of us were, right? It's like, hey, they're all leaving us to go after him. And John's words were, I must decrease that he may increase. He understood this. And so in the midst of this, as as John's been building up this one who is to come, Jesus shows up. You got to think, tons of people all around, people getting baptized, and then Jesus shows up. Now the Bible records that John looks at him and in front of everyone says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." So everybody would have perked their ears up if you've been around at all, right? This must be the guy. And in some ways, it's kind of it's kind of funny that then Jesus comes down and walks and wades into the water and says, "I'd like to be baptized." You got to put yourself in John's position here. He'd have been. He actually says. Um, This kind of undermines my my preaching. I just said you were the one that was supposed to be taking away the sins of the world, and now you're asking me to baptize I've been telling everybody that you're even greater than me, and you're asking me to do things for you. That's, of course, the court standard version. What he actually says is, I need to be baptized by you, but you're asking me to baptize you. And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And the Bible records And he suffered it so, and he baptized Jesus. So you got to love this moment, because Jesus, in a manner of speaking, says, John, I don't have tons of time to explain all this to you, but just trust your own words. I know more than you. And suffer it so that I be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. But i got to give John his due, because if you've ever read this portion of Scripture and thought through your Christian theology, you must, too, have come to the conclusion, why is it that Jesus is being baptized? What's going on here? The sinless one has no need to remit any sin. Why is he submitting himself to the filthy hands of just a human being like you and I to put them down, or him down, into the baptismal waters? I picture myself being John and thinking, how am I going to baptize this guy? Now, they're cousins, so it's probably not this guy, but you know what I mean. Well, it comes down to an old doctrine of the early church Christians trying to grapple with Jesus and two different natures that he seems to have, both his divine nature and his human nature. The doctrine is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Years of Christians trying to wrestle with this. That Christ manifests divine nature many times in the scriptures. We see this in the miracles and many other times. But then he also exhibits very human qualities, like, for instance, when he stops at the woman at the well and admits that he is thirsty or whenever he tells the disciples he's hungry or whenever he shows up to John's funeral I'm sorry Lazarus's funeral in the book of John and weeps even though he is about to in his divine nature raise him from the dead and in Christ's omniscience he knows full well he will he weeps in his human nature and how are these two one well the doctrine of the hypostatic union says that he's fully god and fully man with two natures divine and human and this is key for us because Jesus' work in his life and his death is what the theologians call vicarious, substitutionary. It means Jesus stood in our place. He stands in humanity's place. We know this on the cross, for our sins, Jesus stood in our place. This is over and over again mentioned in the New Testament, that he became a curse for us, stood in our place for our sins, right? When we were weak, yet Christ died for us, and, you know, we've We've been familiar with this, but oftentimes what we miss is that if it were just the death of Jesus Christ that were vicarious and substitutionary, it would only put us back to square one where you and I would once again rebel against the Lord and be damned. Where you and I would go back to where our father Adam was and we would, now many of us maybe don't believe this, we think if we could just get a shot at where Adam was at, maybe we'd do it right this time. Bible doesn't record that. But the good news of the gospel is not merely that Jesus died for you, but he lived for you. In your place, perfect righteousness, so that on the cross, when you place your faith in Jesus, that not only are we imputing our sin nature, our sins onto Christ to be crucified there, but he is imputing unto us his righteousness, perfect fulfillment of righteousness. And in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness as he represents the whole human race as the second Adam. He goes down into the waters of baptism. And even though Christ is not a sinner, he identifies himself with sinners. He is perfectly obedient to the Father's will. He goes down into the waters of baptism and comes back up. And there's this wonderful moment that comes. I want to read that and talk a little bit about what happens in this moment. Starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So you get this glorious scene. My guess, and it's an educated guess, is that no one else who's been baptized had this happen. That it was much like our baptisms where there were celebrations, there could have been tears, there was probably wonderful moments of gratitude to God for the remission of sins, but no one had the heavens torn open and a dove descend as an embodiment of the Holy Spirit with God the Father's audible voice booming down on them. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet that's what we see happen here with the Lord Jesus. Now you got to think that John the Baptist felt a little bit vindicated. Right? Told you guys who he was, you know, um, in this moment. And yet, what we need to see here is that the Trinity is fully present at the baptismal event of Christ. Not only has John the Baptist been a prophetic witness to the person of Christ, who he is, and what he has come to do, but here we see there is a heavenly witness of God the Father and God the Spirit out of the mouth of God the Father, confirming to everyone who's there that this is my Son my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is important because God's spoken word over Jesus is the very truth of God about who he is and what his ministry is going to be about. And the spirit being there confirms this testimony according to God's law. And not only that, but the Jews who are all present there, they're looking for the anointed one. That's what the Messiah means. The Christ means the anointed one. And here God the Father speaks a word of certification as the Holy Spirit anoints Christ in his human nature for the ministry that he is about to undertake. This is truly the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world according to the plan and pleasure of his heavenly Father. And so what we have here is the solidified testimony. It's a glorious moment. It's kind of like the crowning of the king, right? Crowned with what? The Holy Spirit. And then, as often happens in your Bible... The next scene is not what you would have written if you were Shakespeare, you know? Let's read, let's read the very next line in the book of Mark. And I warned you guys, Mark goes quickly, you know, so he just, he just t- whole events are like one verse. Listen to this. And the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now that doesn't seem like a good after party. For the crowning of the king you know what I mean when we have our baptisms we usually have dinner afterwards the whole family's over we talk and excited Jesus after party is to go into the wilderness not eat for 40 days and have a showdown with the devil I want to read Matthew chapter number four because Matthew he records in greater detail the temptation event and I think it's important to read it alongside Mark listen to what Matthew records in chapter 4 verse number 1 he says then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry there's an element another detail that we didn't get with Mark not only is he there for 40 days camping out in the wilderness with the wild beast but he's fasting And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Now, I want to make note here of some of the comparing and contrasting we can do between this event of the showdown of temptation of Jesus Christ by the devil and our first parents and their showdown in the temptation of the serpent with Adam and Eve. Now, first to contrast, what we see here is Christ is not tempted as Adam was in a lush garden. No, Jesus was tempted in a much more difficult, arduous, dark, dare I say, broken, evil place than Adam, who was before the fall with the, in the garden, in a lush garden. You see, Adam has companionship with his wife Eve. Jesus is all alone. Adam has food readily at hand. Jesus is fasting and hungry. Adam has the animals of the earth there that are not hostile to him, but he's even naming them. Meanwhile, Jesus is out in the desert with the wild beasts. Who in the world knows what's out there? But that's who Jesus is camping out with when the devil shows up. And you got to think the only thing that would be more scary, in my opinion, than some of the wild beasts is whenever the dragon shows up to talk to you. But there's also some sameness here. There's, uh, there's a lot of sameness between what happens in this scene with Jesus and the devil and what happens with our first parents and the devil in the garden. First is that it's the serpent doing the tempting. Satan's the one who's doing the tempting. And most importantly, and this is important for us as Christians, is that Satan's tactics Tactics of temptation have not changed for four millennium. 4,000 years, he, he decides to use the same tactics as he did in the beginning. Namely, to attack the very words of God. Now, I want us to go back in, in the book of Mark. What do we see? The very last thing that we saw before Jesus is tempted in the wilderness is the words of God spoken over Jesus at his baptism. And what are those words? This is my son. My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the last thing that Jesus hears before he's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And what's the first thing after 40 days of fasting and fleshly, humanly weakness? What does Jesus hear from the words of the devil? If you really are God's Son, then you'll make these stones bread. Questioning whether or not Jesus believes the words of the Father over him Do you really believe you're God's Son? If you do, then prove it. Jesus, of course, responds with the word of God, which we should also take note of here that Jesus responds to the challenge of God's word with God's word, not with his own sentiment, not with his own courage. Although Jesus among us all is the only one courageous enough to withstand the devil, he does not combat him with his own strength. He combats him with the word of God. And Satan, not being derailed just yet, responds and says a second time, if you are the son of God, if you really believe that, throw yourself off the temple. And then Satan does what he hasn't done yet, and he says, because God's word says this. So he says, if we're going to argue on the basis of God's word, well, then God's word said this. Why not, why not be obedient to God by throwing yourself off the temple if you're his son? And then of course, Jesus responds with God's word and says, the word of God again says that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, Satan pulls off the mask and no more is he going to even kid around with whether or not Jesus believes the words of God over him. Instead, he just says, is your father really that good? Because he's requiring for you to go through the cross, the crown of thorns, but I will give all of that to you if you will but right here, just me and you bow. Ah, he's unmasked now. And this is something that as Christians we should take note of. An attack on us isn't about you. Satan's attack on you is an attack on God. He cares not about you. (laughs) Sometimes we have these high views of ourselves, you know. Satan's attacking me because I'm a pastor. Oh, here we go. (laughs) The grandeur, right? I am so infinitely insignificant to him the only reason I even am bearing in mind of the serpent is because God cares for me. And that is what makes you an attack for him. In that he knows that your denouncing, disbelieving of God and his word is a blow against the glory, a diminishing of the glory of God, at least in Satan's mind. Of course, you can't blot out the sun just because you say it doesn't shine. But still, in Satan's deluded mind, this is his attack. And here we see it in its full form. He wants God's throne, and he wants the Son of God to bow. Now, you might think, what a joke. I mean, how did you think Jesus would ever pull that off? Well, he had already convinced Adam to do it. So it's not like it's unprecedented. But here, Jesus does what our first father did not. And he responds to Satan in the way that only Jesus can. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the chapter. He responds with authority and says, be gone, Satan. In other words, I'm done with you. And then he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And Satan, the Bible records, which I think we should note, in other gospels it records that Satan leaves, but he does not leave him in that he was vanquished, but he leaves for another opportune time. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you know that this is true. Satan may flee from you in certain moments, but he doesn't flee from you forever. He looks for other opportune times. That's why in the book of Job, when he shows up amongst the council of angels and God asks him, where have you been? He says, I've been walking to and fro among the earth. Well, what's he doing? First Peter tells us, seeking whom I may devour. He's just looking for an opportunity. He's doing the same thing with the Son of God. So last night, as I was, as I was doing the details of this sermon, floating around on the internet, of course, dangerous, right? Um, as I prepared for the sermon, there was a clip from a, from a recent sermon from a very prominent megachurch pastor. I'm not going to say his name because it's really unnecessary. But I saw this uh, screen up behind him. And the screen said, quote, it had quotes around, the Bible says, as in the Bible says so, is not an adequate starting point or returning point for many adults. And I thought well, I'd like to hear this. So I listened. And and at first I thought, you know, maybe he's going to apologetics and saying that, you know, like Paul in Athens in Acts 17, there's a way to, you know, bolster and let people understand that the revelation from God is supreme because there is nothing greater than the word of God that is, given us truth and maybe there's a way of, of getting to that. But as I listened to the clip, I was hoping maybe there was going to be a lamenting at this new reality that when we talk to one another, we all just kind of throw the word of God around frivolously as though it were something to be ashamed of. And yet Jesus is clearly not ashamed of it in the fight of his life. You know, I thought maybe there was going to be a lament there, but it wasn't there. I listened to about a five-minute clip of this pastor explaining why returning to the word of God to understand faith is an unhelpful means of evangelism, and it saddened me. And I'm not going to infer intent, assert intent, and I'm really not interested in critiquing sermons. The Lord knows. I'm uninterested. But I want to point out the staunch distinction between that philosophy of exercising faith versus Jesus' philosophy of exercising faith in this battle with the devil. The most powerful tool is God's word and Jesus exhibits that by never deviating from it. You see, all truth claims, and I need you to hear this, all truth claims ultimately will boil down to appeals to authority. If you're going to assert a truth whereby you're asking someone to engage with that assertion and maybe even... I don't know, act in accordance with it, you need to know that you're going to have to be ready to explain the why behind the what. You're going to have to be ready to explain on the basis of some authority why you should be heard. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll give you examples that are just basic, you know, with your children. Clean your room. When the kids get old enough, they do this. Why? (laughs) And you probably do something like, because I said so. Now, whether you know it or not, that's an appeal to authority, There's me saying so, and then there's you saying so. When I say so, it comes to pass in this house. When you say so, we'll think about it. (laughs) Well, why do I have to listen to you? Then he might say something, because I'm your father. Well, now there's another appeal to authority. There's dads and there's sons. There's moms and there's daughters. And on the pecking order, you come beneath me. That's the appeal to authority. And then hopefully if you're a Christian parent, they're saying something like, and the Lord is over me. Okay. If you're a tyrant, you're like, and I am the Lord, you know, of this house. (laughs) Put on a coat. Why? Well, you might say something like, because the weatherman said it's going to be cold and I don't want you to freeze to death. Now, the new authority is the weatherman who understands the weather. And you're trusting that he went to school and he can actually read the clouds and understand the difference between the cumulus clouds and all of the different kinds of clouds, and you know it's going to be cold. So you're like, listen, the weatherman said, just put on a coat and let's do this. But it's still an appeal to authority. Take your pills, Grandma. Why? The doctor said, if you don't, your liver will stop working. Now, the appeal to authority is the doctor who apparently understands the liver. I've never seen my own liver. Okay, I actually had an ultrasound on my heart. I saw it on a screen for the first time. I do not recommend. Okay, it is violent. And I thought if those valves on my heart were like the valves on my truck, I got three and a half years. Most. Okay, but we're appealing to authority. The doctor knows. We need to put your leg in a cast. Well, why? Because this X-ray the doctor says shows that your femur is broken in half. Now, the appeal from the doctor is that the x-ray shows it. The authority is in this machine that shows this x-ray and shows the truth about what's happening beneath the surface of your skin. Now, I want to say, we ought not abandon the word of God, but instead appeal to others to understand that the word of God is authoritative And it's authoritative in a way that supersedes all of the other authorities that I just mentioned. You see, we've been deceived into believing that there's such a thing as neutral ground where we're not appealing to authority, we're appealing to reason. All reason appeals to authority. All of it. It's just about whose reason it appeals to. And the Christian says that we believe God's word to be infallible revelation about who he is and what he's done. And therefore, if we are going to decouple from that, we have now decoupled from the very ground we stand on. Without the absolute, absolute, utter reliance on the word of God as truth, we will only be consigned to our best guesses about the most fundamental realities of life. Skillfully and methodically, you and I have been convinced that we should despise the upbringing of a parent who looks at their child and says, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells you so. And we've been told, don't do that. They'll go to college, and then on the neutral playing fields of academia, that will be destroyed. And you know why that's been successful? Because we all said, oh, no, we don't want to. No, there are no neutral playing fields. Every playing field has assumptions of reason that appeal to authority. And we have done a poor job questioning, well, who's the authority? By whose authority do you say these things? I'll give you an example. Human beings are highly evolved animals that emerged from slime, a single cell organism. 300 billion years ago, this happened through a slow progression. One single celled organism created all of the animals and life that you see. That's right. At one point in that history, a large fish jumped out of the water, grew legs and lungs, and walked. And this all started with a major explosion in the cosmos, where it all just happened to be designed perfectly, just like the last time you blew something up. And even if you were willing to believe all that, you might ask the question, intriguingly, how, with no matter, in the beginning, was there an explosion? What was the matter that the explosion was created from if there was none? And maybe, depending upon if you're watching Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, the science guy, they'll go on a long expose, which really boils down to, trust us. We know better. Because when you really boil it down, are they willing to admit that they don't have any idea why that would ever happen? Nothing in all of creation seems to give any indication that that would ever happen. That nothing would create something with an explosion, much less that explosion would create order out of chaos. Explosions create chaos out of order. But trust us is the answer. And the reason trust us is the answer is because there is an authority behind the neutral playing field that you and I have been convinced exists and doesn't. No Christian, Satan knows this. And that's why he, when he comes to Jesus, he, he plays no pretense. He attacks with the word because he knows that his only hope is to appeal through deception upon the authority that is over him. Satan himself knows that if he can get you to decouple from the very words of God and trusting God's word, he has already defeated you. And so I have to say this, I say it lovingly, I say it pastorally, and I'll even say it about myself. My best ideas, my intellect, my sentiment, my feelings about who I think God should be don't matter. You shouldn't care about my feelings, about who I think God should be. Because guess what? I'm not him. He gets to decide who he is and reveal himself to you, and then you and I must grapple with that. But the moment that I get up and tell you about my sentiment... You should say, I don't want this guy around. He's dangerous. You see, none of it matters when it comes to the truth about what God said. The only thing that matters, and this is why Jesus asked his disciples, is who do you say that I am, Peter? Who do you say that I am? And I want you to listen with ears. Ty mentioned this last week, and I I think it's imperative we think about it. Much of tradition says that this account was the very first gospel to be written, that it's from the account of Peter, given to John Mark when Peter is on his way to be martyred and before Peter dies he gives his description of the life of Jesus and so I want you for a moment to think of yourself here with Peter along with the other Christians in the catacombs of the Roman Empire hearing the account of Jesus's life and ministry from the words in the mouth of Peter listen with their ears because we by the grace and mercy of God will never face what they were facing They're facing imminent persecution, imminent death, perhaps the next day, and they're hearing this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was not merely baptized and affirmed by the Father, but then was immediately driven into the darkest season of despair that any human perhaps has ever experienced. And there, on our behalf, he withstood the temptation of Satan himself. The temptation was the same temptation that our first parents were tempted with and the same temptation that you and I are tempted with daily, and that is, will we believe God's word? You see, Jesus was with the wild beasts threatening him. And these Christians very well may face down wild beasts in the Colosseum themselves. And the very strength of Christ is present with them here in the catacombs as Peter recounts the life and ministry of Jesus. He is with you. The one who already has overcome is with you. What is the battle? Is it against against flesh and blood? No, the battle is a battle in the spirit, about whether we will believe God's word. In the dark night of the soul, will we believe God's promises over us? If you're a Christian and you have been for any length of time, you most likely have been attacked by the enemy about how you can be sure that you're in Christ. How can you be sure he is who he says he is? And here it's the most fundamental rocking temptation of all. And Jesus told us that these storms will come. He says when they come, not if they will come. And he said the only ones whose house will stand is that which house is built upon, who? The rock. The foundation of God's word, the truth about who Jesus is, when we are coupled, anchored to that truth, the storms may batter on that house, but it will not come down. When all the elements of the world seem to be arrayed against you, everything's trying to make you doubt. Everything you see, everything you touch, everything you taste, everything you hear, all of it is arrayed against you, trying to make you doubt whether or not you really know what you think you know. Will you take him at His word? That's the question. That's the real question. And then what you see is Jesus immediately goes into two other actions, right? Well what happens? Jesus immediately comes out of the wilderness, I would take a nap. and he goes right into work. Listen to what the Bible records. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first thing he does is begin preaching, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and that he's the king. I'm the one John told you about. And then verse 16, passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So then he starts calling disciples to himself. The king calls us to himself not merely by making us aware of the forgiveness and the substitutionary life and the vicarious death that he accomplished for us, not merely that we might experience the wonders of his grace. All of that is true, but he calls us to himself particularly to follow him. Come and follow me. Walk with him. Trace the footsteps of Jesus. Live lives, as Paul said, that are worthy of the gospel that we've received, that gave us the right to become sons and daughters in whom the Father is well-pleased. You see, the baptism of Jesus is also later an invitation to us that if we are in Christ, the Father would say over your life and over my life, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that we should live our lives in a manner that's worthy of that kind of calling. every time I read this text, and I will say the older that I get, the less likely this passage becomes for me to believe, at least in my flesh, And I want to tell you why. And maybe because I'm a man, I can't help it. Maybe man, this will resonate with you, but I think it'll resonate with all of us. If Jesus wanted to start an army, he would have went to the soldiers and recruited them. If he wanted to start a school, he would have gone to Athens and got the professors. Okay, he would have gotten the thinkers of the day. Jesus is going to build a kingdom though, and he goes fishing. And fishermen, to me, gives the indication And I don't know if you've ever hung out with just regular old blue-collar people. That's the family that I come from. It's most of my life. If you've ever hung out with these people, maybe some of you are these kind of people, they don't have time to suffer fools gladly. And there's a reason why. Sometimes people think, well, they're just surly and mean. If you've had an old grandfather that maybe was kind of like this, he probably wasn't as sweet to you always as you wanted him to be, you know? You know, maybe he didn't, you know, play around with you as much, but he like, like my grandfather did, I joked with the a few friends. One time he told me, I'm going to pay you $5. He had five acres. I'm going to pay you $5, dollar an acre to knock down all the crawdad holes in my front yard. And I said, okay, what do you want me to do it with? He said, I got something I built for you. And he had taken a pallet and he had taken an old street sign that he found on the side of the road. He bolted that street sign to that pallet and he put a rope around it and he tilted it around my shoulders and said, now just pull. <laughs> $5. I remember thinking this isn't even minimum wage, You know, so you think about these kind of guys, you're like, man, it could have been nicer. Why not just give me $5 to get the ice cream? My grandfather was a great man, but, you know, he didn't didn't suffer fools lightly. And there's a reason for that, because usually fishermen like this, the noblemen just get food brought to them, you know? They don't think about how it's cooked, how it's made, how it was caught, the labor. You just eat your nice, and, you know, a lot of us, we live like noblemen. Like, we're going to go, and we're going to eat, and we're not even going to think about where this came from. It's just like, man, it tastes amazing. But not Fishermen. Fishermen go out, they throw their nets out, they get, they get as many fish as they can. they got to figure out how I'm going to gut this fish and make sure that the meat is good for my family. Or if I'm going to sell these fish, i got to make sure I get it out of the water, on ice, into the market, sell it quickly, and then pay my taxes to, to the Romans, which is exorbitant, and make sure that we're not just going to you know, die on the vine as a family. And to those men, Jesus shows up and says, hey, you follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I would think the response that he would get would be, I'm going to euphemistically say, leave me alone. And that's not what happens. It's absolutely extraordinary. These men, who do not suffer fools gladly, hear the words of Christ and immediately drop everything. They drop it all. The Bible even records that when James and John hear it, they leave their dad there with the higher servants, which would have been the family business. We're out of here. They just follow Jesus. And the text is explicit. This text is very God-centric, not man-centric. It is meant to wrestle you from your man-centric worldview. It's meant to wrestle you from the realities that we and I just accept as true every day. And that is that the main necessities of life are our jobs and our bank accounts and the food that we eat and all those. And Jesus is going to go on to say, your heavenly father knows that you need all of those things, but you should seek first the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is going to say, now that I'm here, I will reorder everything in your life under my authority. And that's what happens with these men their jobs, their careers, their family, their finances, their commitments, their responsibilities, all of it pales in comparison with the king. Paul the apostle will later call it rubbish. There's a radical reordering that happens here. And guess what it changes? It changes the very thing that many of us are keen to pass by. It changes the way they live their lives. So the question becomes, how is the word of God spoken in the mouth of the Lord Jesus, changing the way that we live. How has it reordered us in such a way that King Jesus, who has claimed authority in heaven and on earth over all things, our jobs, our finances, our marriage, how is it changing us as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, shaping us in such a way that because Christ has said it, we We'll submit to it. And therefore, it isn't about our opinions on how we should lead our families. It's about how Christ has called us to lead them. It isn't our opinions on how we should handle our finances, but how Christ has called us to handle our finances. It isn't our opinions, men, on whether or not we should ask for forgiveness in that argument where you were 99.9% right. Your opinion matters not. Your job is to lead. You lead the way in many ways. One of the ways is in repentance. So, where does that leave us? Well, I want to end with those disciples that sit with Peter as he's reading this out to John Mark, knowing that the big question that often comes to mind, and I guarantee it comes to mind with these disciples, is, am I going to have what it takes when the rubber meets the road here not to recant and beg for my life? Am I, I going to have, what I, when the real rubber meets the road, and it's really the, the you know, let's, let's just call it for our sake, the trial of your life. I don't know what that's going to be. You know, we tend to all think that it's already happened to us. That's just wishful thinking. <laughs> I hope it's true for us that have really had rough times, but the truth is we don't know. But when that time comes, the question that often arises is, will I hold fast to the word of God as Jesus does? And I want to tell you The answer that this text gives us, once again, is not man-centric, but God-centric. The answer is not like that coach that tells you, you better dig deep. There's merit to that. But dig deep how? It's not the quantity of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It is the object of your faith that should be on your mind. Who do you say that I am, Peter? It's not how well you believe, how much you believe. It's in whom you have believed. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these disciples should be given such great courage because Peter's telling them Jesus already overcame Satan. He already overcame the world, and you are in him by faith. And so your faith is merely, it's the object of your faith that matters most to the battling Christian. Where you put your faith. And that's why Jesus told disciples, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Why? Is it the faith that's great? No, it's the object of the faith that is great because the God of the universe who made the mountains can move them without a word. The one who blows the wind and decides where the wind blows isn't worried about hurricanes. Jesus is literally sleeping in the midst of a storm on the sea and the disciples say, why would you let us perish? And Jesus says, peace be still. Friends, our king as we face down the trials of our lives is a king who promised to never leave us or forsake us. If he be with us, Paul reasoned it like this, if God be for you, who can be against you? It's not your strength. It's not John the Baptist's strength. It's Jesus' strength. And we place our faith in him. And so I want to commend that to you this morning. Number one, that we would never decouple ourselves from God's word because it is in God's word that we have been told the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And if we will but hold fast to the king, we'll be carried through even the greatest of storms. Let me pray for us. Father, I know without a shadow of a doubt there are those under the sound of my voice who have turmoil in their lives and their families, much anxiety surrounding different issues. And so my prayer now, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate Christ as a king who has conquered, not merely a conquering king, but a king who has conquered and who has won, who is risen and reigning. Illuminate that to us that we might put our faith, even the grain of a mustard seed faith, in the king who defends us. Father, I know that the serpent has, is whispering to many, as he has always tried to do. And we ask now that you, with the power of your own heel, would crush his head. Stand forth now from the gospel and protect us from all of his schemes, that we might root ourselves and ground ourselves in your word. And in so doing, we would experience the freedom that you offer. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are, and we pray it in your precious name. Amen.